And tonight I'd like to talk about investigation, which is the second of the seven factors of awakening. And so as a factor of awakening, it is a, an important quality for us to cultivate because it is one of the factors that supports us in seeing things as they are, that yata bhuta that Carol was talking about the other night. The word investigation for us, the English word investigation, sometimes conjures up the, um, the meaning of thinking about or figuring out. Yet this is not what the Buddha had in mind with this quality of investigation, this second factor of awakening. In practice, in investigating our experience, looking at our experience, being with our experience, we are, uh, rather than trying to figure out why something's happening, we are encouraged to look at what is happening moment after moment after moment. And this, I think, is one of the key ways we can recognize investigation is that we are exploring what is happening in the present moment. And yet again, as I was saying last week, and as we've kind of said all week long, it's not simply about being aware in the present moment. There's a perspective that we bring to make investigation, to to make this looking at what's happening in the present moment a factor of awakening. When the Buddha described this factor of investigation, dhamma vichaya is the Pali term, and uh, maybe you know translated as investigation of states. Somewhat, I think Tanisaro Bhikkhu translates it as analysis of qualities. And the word analysis also has that notion of figuring out and um, uh, thinking about. So I really think we want to look at this um, from the perspective of not figuring out, but being with. And as the Buddha described this term, he offered for us what its nourishment is. He encouraged us to nourish the awakening factors. And he said that the factor that most nourished this quality of investigation is something called wise attention. This brings the qualities of wisdom and awareness together, this wise attention. One of the key definitions of wise attention is found in one of the suttas where the Buddha is talking about 
how one attends when one attends with wise attention. And he says, one attends wisely. This is suffering. One attends wisely. This is the cause of suffering. One attends wisely. This is the cessation of suffering. And one attends wisely. This is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. When I first heard this, I didn't really get it. <laughs> you know, I thought, well, he's just saying the Four Noble Truths. But the way it's phrased, when I, when I read it and reflected on it, he, he, it's pointing to the present moment. He said, this is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. And so I think what he's pointing to is that we explore the present moment experience, looking at what's happening in the present moment from the perspective of the Four Noble Truths. Is what's arising in the present moment suffering? Is what's arising in the present moment the cause of suffering, the craving? Is what's arising in the present moment the ending of suffering? Or is what's arising in the present moment some of the beautiful qualities of heart and mind that support us on our path? So essentially, using the Four Noble Truths as a framework for exploring our experience. So he's pointing us into the present moment around exploring the Four Noble Truths. the more I have explored this and reflected on this in my own experience, the more I have come to appreciate that this reflection, I'll just take one right now, this is suffering, is really a deep pointing to truth that when suffering is arising, it's arising in the present moment. Suffering occurs in the present moment. It doesn't occur anywhere else. It may be that there is a thought of the past arising in the present moment and that reactivity has been constructed around that thought. But the actual experience of suffering is happening right now. On one retreat, I kept having this memory come up. It was, a, it was a repeating memory, one of those that came up over and over again. And it was of a time that I had been in a play. I had been um, acting in a play. And I had forgotten my line. And the, you know, the kind of the wall went down between myself and the audience, and it's like, I looked out at the audience, and there they were, looking back at me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And that memory of that, that that was the memory of looking out at the audience and seeing people looking at me. It's like embarrassment. You know, embarrassment arose. On this retreat, that memory came, and embarrassment arose over and over again. And finally, you know, I really began to clearly get it. I mean, obviously, there had been conditions in the past. I had been in that play, and that had happened. 
But what was happening in, this was on a three-month course, and seeing this over and over over the course of a three-month course, I really began to see that what was happening was that the thought was arising, the memory was arising for some reason, and there were conditions for that. Things don't happen randomly, so the memory was arising, and the feeling of embarrassment was constructed all over again. It was being created right in the present moment. It wasn't as if there was some like um, store of that embarrassment sitting there somewhere waiting to be dredged up. It was actually being recreated. That's a pretty amazing thing. And it's pretty freeing, actually, when we really get that. Because the fact that it is constructed in the present moment means that there are kind of processes going on in our mind that are putting it together right here and now. And when they can be seen, the mind begins to choose not to go down the route of suffering. So this is suffering. This suffering is arising in the present moment. Whether we're suffering, as as Joseph said, over something in our past or even more amazingly something that we imagine out of whole cloth for our future, it's being constructed now. The cause of that suffering is also constructed now. The craving, the wanting. Last week I talked about this story about Noticing loneliness when I went to bed every night. I don't know if you remember the story. I'll just mention it again briefly in case some of you don't remember it. So my partner had broken up with me and I was going to bed lonely every night. Now it didn't particularly strike me as odd that I was going to bed lonely every night. I thought I understood something about the why I was going to bed lonely. You know, in my mind, it was something like, well, of course I'm lonely. I'm going to bed alone. And yet, through the exploration of the feeling of loneliness, and as I described, noticing that it arose when I was setting my alarm clock, and then seeing over the next few nights this memory of being with my partner in um, Disneyland, looking up at the clock, I could see that the actual present moment cause of the loneliness had to do with the reaction to that memory. It had nothing to do with going to bed alone. So the cause of that loneliness was created, again, based on this arising memory. Created in the present moment. And as I described, when that was seen, when that connection was seen, the mind chose not to go down the path of loneliness. I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have said, don't do that anymore. But the wisdom that the mind understood, that way lies suffering. The mind let go of it. Now, it doesn't always happen that quickly. I will describe going through some of these examples. 
in investigation. So suffering and its cause are happening in the present moment. We can begin to, hmm, through the witnessing of what's happening in the present moment, the mind begins to let go of the causes. When the causes are released, the suffering is released. So the fact that pretty much everything that we can know happens in the present moment really is encouraging us to do this investigation here and now, looking at what is happening, just what is happening moment after moment. Now this is what we've been talking about almost every day. How do we look at what's happening in the present moment? We notice our bodies what's happening in the present moment underneath the level of concept. We notice the vibratory energy. We notice the uh, hardness, softness, coolness, heat, pressure, tension, tightness, burning, aching, stabbing, pulling, twisting, tearing, all of these physical sensations. We notice our emotions, our moods happening. We notice how those impact the body. We notice thoughts. All of these arising. And as these arise, we often see actually that there's a tendency, there's a tendency in our minds to want to understand why something is happening. And this is a Um, something to kind of watch for. The, you know, the tendency to try to figure out, well, why is that happening, tends to take us into story, tends to take us into, uh, away from the present moment, the what is happening moment after moment. As we explore what's happening moment after moment, we begin to actually understand not from the perspective of what we think about something. We can construct all kinds of reasons why we're feeling a particular emotion. We can go back to the causes from our past, our history. We can reconstruct you know, well, of course I'm feeling this way, you know, this is the way, you know, when I was a kid on the playground, this is the way, I, you know, people, you know, teased me, and, you know, this is kind of reminding me of that, and we can, we can think about that kind of thing. And yet that's taking us away from what's actually happening moment after moment. The more we are willing to actually explore what's happening moment after moment, we start to see that all the information that we need to understand the suffering of this moment, how the suffering is created in this moment, all the information that we need is found right in the present moment. And that looking at what is happening is the best way to uncover what we could call the why of the present moment. In a sense, the more continuous our mindfulness gets, And the more continuous our mindfulness gets, the more natural this aspect of investigation is. 
the more continuous our mindfulness gets, the more it reveals these um, causes in the present moment. We see a thought. We see that we are reacting to that thought in the present moment. It's actually quite amazing. I mean, when um, in the earlier days of my practice, like that example of the play, you know, the, the play where that thought of forgetting my line came up. At first, it seemed like there was, you know, just no distinction, no possibility of that memory coming up without the embarrassment coming up. It seemed like they were intimately connected, like one came with the other. But the more I observed and the more I was with the present moment experience, the more I could see that there was the arising of the thought. And that was just thought. And that there, there was a reaction to that thought. That the, the embarrassment was then recreated all over again. It wasn't that that thought was, like, came with the package of embarrassment. There's a little gap. There was a little gap. And so the continuity of mindfulness begins to reveal these cause and effect relationships, begins to reveal how our minds get hooked into the patterns of suffering. So this exploration of looking at what's happening in the present moment as opposed to trying to figure out why things are happening. This is one of the ways that um, we get confused about investigation, you know, the word investigation. And so just to encourage you to have the interest to explore moment after moment what is happening. Another way that we try to figure things out, perhaps, a kind of a habit that we may have, at least some of us may have around our experience, is that as we do hang out with our experience, you know, as we, we start looking at what's going on moment after moment, we begin to see with certain patterns, certain habits that we have, certain particular, oh, familiar, conditioned habits of suffering, of struggle that we, we all have our own favorites. You know, one of mine was self-hatred we see that they're fairly complex, you know, kind of layered. And we may have a sense that, well, there's so many layers to this that what we really need to do in order to have this whole thing fall apart is to get right into the middle of it and see what's kind of at the root of it. Now, this may prompt us to kind of go digging, you know, digging for what's there. So, you know, for example, we might 
there might be um, um, a feeling of resistance. And that resistance may be covering up, you know, just to give an example of how this, this works, you know, so there, there may be a feeling of resistance. And we have a sense, perhaps, that, you know, there's some anger there and we're resisting the anger. And maybe we've seen in the past that often our anger is related to fear. And so, you know, we may have a sense, well, there's resistance, you know, maybe I need to go find the fear. Not really, you know, respecting or acknowledging, well, what is actually being felt right now is resistance. Instead, we're like, try to dive into the middle of it, you know, try to figure out what's in the middle of it. Assuming, in a sense, what's in the middle of it because of history, of things that we've seen in our experience before. So I've seen in my own practice that this is actually not that often helpful because if we go looking for something, we can usually find it. You know, it's like it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. We say, well, okay, I'm feeling resistance, so there must be fear under there. Well, where's the fear? You know, we're kind of scanning, looking for the fear. So in investigation, our practice is to, I kind of think of, if we've got a, a kind of a big mess of whatever it is, you know, a big mess of self-hatred, a big mess of confusion, a big mess of anxiety, it's like we put our arms around the whole thing and just, can we take in what is obvious about that experience rather than trying to dig for what's in the middle. Just what's obvious about this rather than assuming there's something underneath to be found, allowing the, you know, the kind of the, the, the wide arms to take in the entirety of the experience and just notice what's obvious. In my own experience, my own practice of exploring in that way, investigating in that way, what I've seen is that it's kind of a very natural, hmm, gentle almost, uh, revealing that as we are able to like put our arms around it and be with the most obvious thing, just being with that most obvious thing, sometimes the underneath pieces begin to show themselves. So being with resistance, hanging out with resistance, there's resistance, this is what resistance feels like. And then there's this little flare of anger. Oh, anger's here now. Now we can look at anger because it's here, it's in the present moment, it's clear, it's obvious. One of my teachers, um, Saira Upandita, offers the uh, analogy of it for investigation. I think it it may actually be for um, the meeting of experience, the... the, um, I, I, I think it may not be for investigation exactly, but it's the, the quality of mind that stays with experience. 
he talks about that being like um, rubbing a bowl with a soft cloth. So that's a very different kind of way of exploring experience than you know, picking it apart, pulling it apart. It's, it's more trusting that the mind's meeting experience, the kind of the continuity, I think of the continuity of the mindfulness being like that soft cloth, that it will reveal what needs to be known what needs to be seen. So it's helpful, I think, to not make assumptions about what lies underneath the outer layers. So, for instance, you know, feeling lonely. Um, must like, A feeling of depression, for instance, arising, and a feeling of loneliness must underlie that that feeling of depression. I had a a situation kind of like this at one retreat. I was experiencing some low-grade depression. And I had some theories about what it might be connected to. You know, I saw, in fact, the loneliness, the the depression arise when I was um, seeing people walk together. And so, you know, potentially, I thought, well, maybe it has to do with loneliness, you know. But fortunately, at that point, I, I, um, I was experienced enough to set that aside and say, well, maybe, you know, maybe it has to do with loneliness. Rather than going and digging and saying, where's the loneliness? I'm sure I could have constructed loneliness. But just being with the depression, noticing kind of the obviousness of what was there, I learned a lot about my mind. I mean, I learned a lot about how that depression came into being. You know, in fact, it was kind of surprising. I found it came into being when the mind was really calm. So, you know, just exploring. If for several weeks, this was one of my main patterns that re-arose. And just willing to meet it, be with it, notice it. Noticing when it's present, noticing when it's absent, Noticing when I felt caught by it and struggling with it. Noticing when it felt like, oh, it's just depression. It's fine. It's no problem. Just being with it over and over and over again. Feeling it get expanded. Feeling my heart contract. Just being with it. And then one day in the exploration of this, I felt like the, the, the depression began to get really big. And... Uh, you know, it's like, oh, wow, look at this. And, and it was, there was absolutely no re- resistance at this point. There were bodily sensations that were associated with this feeling of depression. And the bodily feelings, it felt like my body got really big as I was exploring the sensations, the, the physical sensations of depression and the mental state of depression. It felt like it was just expanding, 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 expanding. And at some point in that process the experience felt like it turned inside out. And what was there in that moment was a beautiful, expanded feeling of metta, of loving kindness. Now, that was not what I expected to find in the middle of that state of depression. Now, the very next thought that came up was telling uh, about perhaps what was going on because the very next thought that arose in my mind was, 
in the midst of this beautiful, expansive feeling of metta. This is stupid. This is sappy. This is corny. (laughs) Gave me a little clue, perhaps, as to, you know, the depression potentially being around not being able to connect with that feeling of the expanded metta. So holding assumptions lightly about what is in the middle, the willingness to just meet what is happening, that was the key for me for that exploration. And more times than I can probably even recall, I've been surprised by what I found when I've been willing to just settle back and let go of the assumptions, let go of the ideas that I have about what my mind is about, and instead just observe, just notice what is happening. So this exploration of what is happening it's kind of like gathering data. My, um, one of my teachers, Sayada Utejaniya, whom Carol has referred to a couple of times, has uh, used this analogy of data gathering, and, and he, he used this example. He said, think about the people, you know, the, the early, early people, uh, you know, probably as far back as caveman people, going out and looking up at the stars. And, you know, the first time you go out and look up at the stars, I mean, if you didn't have all the history of stargazing behind us, the first time you go out and look up at the stars, it's like, wow, there's a pattern. There's some pattern up there. And then the next night you go out and you see the pattern. And the next night you go out and you see the pattern. And each night you see the pattern and probably you see little shifts as you go. You see little shifts in terms of when the stars are coming up. You may see shifts in terms of, you know, there's a few stars up there that don't seem to behave like all the others. They wander through the field of stars rather than being in the fixed places. So night after night, night after night, looking up at the stars, the um, understanding begins to grow of what is going on up there. So it's kind of similar here that we gather the data, particularly around patterns of experience, familiar patterns of experience. Each time something arises, like that depression, for instance, each time that arose was a new opportunity to gather some data. And the, uh, each time we see it, we get a little, it's like a little new bit of perspective on the situation, and the mind begins to understand and put together the patterns It can happen kind of organically that the mind begins to understand the patterns just through 
the patient witnessing of our experience. So one of the things we sometimes see when we observe our experience in this way, watching patterns over and over again, one of the things that sometimes we see is a pattern vanishing. On one retreat, I was um, feeling a lot of wanting when I was doing walking meditation, wanting to look at the people who were around me. Is that familiar? (laughs) You know, I was, I had been, um, I don't know if I'd been given the instruction not to look at people, but I was definitely looking at shoes, you know. I really wanted to look at faces. And I, for, the, for the first few weeks, this was at a three-month course, and for the first few weeks, I was telling myself, I'm not going to look. It was like I had blinders on. I'm not going to look. And um, I was a good yogi. I was not going to look at people's faces. After some weeks of this, you know, finally it's like it hit me upside the head. It's like, wanting is happening. Maybe I should look at wanting. I had not really been cognizant that wanting was happening. I was so, I had such the agenda of being a good yogi that I did not really recognize or acknowledge wanting. So at some point I began being curious about wanting, wanting to look. And I got really interested in the feeling. It felt actually like a magnet. You know, when somebody was walking nearby, it felt like, you know, I, I, was, I was deciding to not act on the wanting, but to just feel into it. So I would, I would be there doing the walking meditation, and someone would come into my field of vision, and I'd feel this, like, pull, oh. And, and since I was not acting on it, it'd be, I really got to feel that feeling of, of the pull, the unsatisfying feeling of wanting the uncomfortable feeling that this isn't the way I want it to be. I want to be able to look. So really got familiar with that pull, that feeling of the pull. And I also began to notice really clearly when it arose. So again, just looking at what's happening, just being curious about wanting, I, I began to really clearly see, you know, I'd be walking, I, I put myself outside away from people, actually, because I didn't want to have to be dealing with this all the time. So uh, I was doing the walking meditation, and then I would notice, you know, somebody would pop into my peripheral vision. Oh, the wanting would spring right up. There it was. And I'd feel that like magnetic pull, and then I was, you know, just keeping my eyes down. And I felt like the the pull was like somebody talked about this tractor beam on Star Trek or something. Kind of this, you know, kind of this pull, feeling the pull to look to look, and the person like would walk there and like walk in front of me. They're right in front of me, really, really tempting to look up. And then they're like, I was walking out in front. They walk up the stairs, go into the door the wanting would vanish. That was an interesting moment. It felt like being released from a vice grip. So that's something that we can begin to see. You know, the ending of 
our struggles, our suffering. We can begin to see through the investigation what the causes are that put it together, what the causes are that have it fall apart. This is in the terrain of that aspect of wise attention, seeing the ending of suffering. I'm not saying that was Nibbana. I'm not saying that was, you know, (laughs) seeing the ending of that wanting was Nibbana. I'm not saying that. But it is in the terrain of realizing how suffering falls apart. And we can witness this in our observing what's happening, what's happening. Now, that, that, that experience kind of continued. It was, uh, it, was, it was an interesting lesson here, too, because for a little while, I really got into watching this because, you know, I would watch the, the suffering, you know, appear, and then I would, you know, kind of be waiting for it to disappear because, you know, it's like, oh, I get to watch it go away when they disappear. And, you know, it was, it was fun. I got to watch this. And, and at some point, I realized an interesting thing, that I was actually holding on to the wanting in order to watch it disappear. (laughs) And when that became seen, the whole thing fell apart. And the pattern of wanting to look at people, just it just ended. So there's a lot that we can learn from looking at what, 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 what is happening in the present moment. So in that example, seeing something disappear kind of quickly, you know, that doesn't happen that often, at least in my experience, that with particularly some of these habits or uh, patterns that are really familiar, these multi-layered patterns that are so sticky, Often we have to look at them over and over again. A lot of patience is asked of us to keep exploring these patterns over and over again. This is the gradual cultivation that Joseph was talking about last night. This gradual cultivation. And in my own practice, this gradual cultivation has been the main way that the path has unfolded. I've had a few of those kind of, you know, really big insights of seeing something kind of mind-blowing. But most of the insights, many of the insights, many of the freeing, much of the freeing that's happened, particularly around um, kind of the personal dukkha, the dukkha around personality and who I am and how I was raised, that has been a more gradual wearing wearing away. The Buddha offered an analogy for our practice that I love because it so speaks to me. He said that much of our practice unfolds in a gradual way. And he he uses this analogy of a shipwreck, of a ship that's been, you know, strewn around the beach. The parts of the ship are kind of all over the beach. And he said that over the course of months, the sun, the sand, the wind, the water 
wear away at the parts of the ship. And the day by day, and this is an extrapolation, you know, here from my understanding of the analogy, day by day, you're not going to see much change in any one part of the ship. A board sits there, you go look at it every day, you may even take a microscope to it, it's not going to look like it changes much day after day. But gradually, gradually, the wearing away is happening. And, you know, imagine some of the rigging, the, the, the rope that holds the sails together. Day after day, you look at that piece of rope, it may not change at all, but a year later you go and you try to pick it up and it falls apart in your hand. Much of our practice unfolds in this gradual way. And sometimes I've seen that things fall apart without my knowing they fell apart until kind of later. So an example around this, you know, the, there was a period of, of my practice where I was really exploring anger, anger at a particular person. And um, I began to notice at some point that my whole way of exploring with the anger was kind of hooking me back into the pattern of anger. And so I recognized that the, the mind states and the thoughts were, were like stronger than my ability to be mindful of them. And so I began like bowing to my anger and saying, I see you and now is not the time to pay attention to you. But I'll pay attention to you when my mindfulness gets stronger. So I, I, I kind of said, not now, to that anger. And then just turned my attention to something else. So this was kind of a skillful setting aside of the pattern. I just turned my attention. I was often walking when this came up. I turned my attention to my feet on the ground. Just letting the anger. It's like, you do your thing. I'm not going to try to stop you. But I'm not going to pay attention to you either. And, uh, you know, in this way, I noticed the anger come up over and over again. Oh, I see you, not now. I see you, not now. And I did begin to notice, you know, I noticed that, I think in retrospect a little bit, I began to notice that it wasn't as much of a problem over, you know, it used to come up a lot. It was, it was coming up like, you know, every day. And then maybe it started coming up every few days and then maybe every week. And just kind of the, the bouts of that mind state got farther and farther between, at least with respect to that particular person, you know, the anger at that particular person. You know, I didn't particularly think about it too much. You know, it's like, well, maybe that person isn't coming up in my mind so much. You know, it's just, it just wasn't arising this anger wasn't arising as frequently. And then one day, I was walking up to my front door and I realized, wow, I haven't felt that anger in a really long time. And even thinking about it, you know, thinking about it brought the person that I had been angry with into my mind. And I still didn't feel the anger. I was kind of like, wow, you know, so I, 
where did it go? And I didn't actually trust that it was gone, but it never came back. It had ended without my seeing it end. So this is another way that, I mean, I had met it each time. It's kind of like, I see you, not now. I see you, not now. So I had met it each time, put it aside without aversion, and it just lost its momentum. There's a, I don't know if some of you have seen this film, What the Bleep? It talks about these neural networks um, that, you know, the things, and, and what the Buddha said, you know, what we frequently ponder becomes the inclination of our mind. That's kind of the, you know, some of what this film was pointing to, that when we engage in a pattern over and over again, the neurons kind of shore it up. It's like, oh yeah, that one must be important. Bring more neurons in to support that. It fires again. It's like, oh, that one must be important. Bring more in. So, you know, that's the way our, our brains work, you know. Whatever, whatever we frequently ponder becomes the inclination. It's a very natural process of the way our brains work. The um, interesting piece about this from the, the perspective of neurobiology is that when a pattern stops being engaged with, the neurons begin to rewire. Like, oh, that one's not important. It's like when they're not used in that pattern, they begin to put their tendrils out elsewhere. The pattern can kind of fall apart in that way. Another area that's important to um, investigate. You know, I've been kind of looking at the, the difficulty. But it's also really important to investigate the wholesome. To investigate happiness calm, peace, equanimity, (coughs) concentration. (coughs) The investigation here is really about being with. There's something beautiful about the factor of mindfulness. It has this amazing quality that, I'm going to take a step back for a second. You know, we talk about the four right efforts, cultivating the wholesome, letting go of the unwholesome, abandoning those unwholesome states that have arisen, avoiding unwholesome states that have not yet arisen, cultivating 
wholesome states that have not yet arisen and maintaining wholesome states that have arisen. Winnie talked about this the other night. And that sounds very much like a doing. And it can be. We can actively cultivate wholesome states of metta, for example, you know, using the metta practice that we've been doing. And there's another way to cultivate wholesome states and abandon unwholesome states, and that is through mindfulness. Mindfulness itself is, as my teacher Upandita said, I'll say wise mindfulness, the most wholesome mind state. And so cultivating wise mindfulness, we are cultivating a wholesome state. When it's not present, we're planting the seeds for it to be present. So we are cultivating, cultivating that state of mindfulness. And mindfulness has this beautiful capacity, this beautiful quality, that when we have that wise mindfulness, wise awareness of unwholesome, unskillful states. Mindfulness of those, wise mindfulness of those, tends to create the conditions for them to appear less frequently in our experience. And when we bring our mindful attention to wholesome states, to joy, to happiness, to love, to compassion, when we bring our mindful attention to those states, it creates the conditions for them to appear more frequently in our experience. And so the cultivation of mindfulness contains the four right efforts. And so one of the most beautiful ways to uh, encourage wholesome states is to be mindful, mindful of them when they have arisen be with them, recognize them. It's so easy to get lost in those beautiful states, to kind of bliss out or just be in the experience rather than really with it, aware of it. So the awareness of that Awareness of those wholesome states, we can look at as being this other aspect of wise attention, the aspect of recognizing the path. Because these wholesome states are the path. They're pointing the way. So recognizing, cultivating the path. This is the path leading to the end of suffering. This is one of the things about wise attention. Essentially, any experience that we're having in this moment can be seen through one of these lenses of the Four Noble Truths. Either what's happening in the moment is suffering, the cause of suffering, the ending of suffering, or maybe these qualities, these beautiful, wholesome qualities, the path leading to the end of suffering. So cultivating the path in this way, mindful of these qualities, these beautiful qualities of mind. 
We do have a tendency to cling to some of these states. I'm sure you've noticed that. (laughs) And so one of the helpful tools for us in observing these wholesome states of mind is to recognize our relationship to them. So not just settle back and kind of... uh, go into the bliss and like, oh yeah, this is really good. I mean, you know, if you're noting, it's like, oh yeah, bliss, bliss. (laughs) Okay, that note is going to give you a clue, right? You know, a little bit of attachments going on. So noticing our relationship to these states. Not to beat ourselves up about it, but to disentangle us from the craving around these states. Actually, in my own experience, when I'm feeling like joy or happiness and wanting it to continue, having that kind of holding around it, it really doesn't allow the, the, the feeling and that state to flower fully. The, the clinging seems to dampen it down a little bit. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this, uh, you know, concentration. It's a, it's a um, kind of a classic thing that happens is that, you know, you're, you're um, notice you're paying attention to the breath and noticing the experiences that are happening and it's starting to feel really good. And it's like, oh, yeah, wow, this feels really good. And then poof, it's gone. So, you know, that, that kind of sense of, ooh, more of that. I want more of that kind of gets in the way for us. Sometimes the clinging to these wholesome states can be really subtle. It's kind of amazing how subtle it can be. I was at um, Shui Umin, Saito Utejaniya's monastery, and I was, um, at one point, had a state of mind that was quite peaceful, very spacious, very quiet, very tranquil. And um, as far as I could tell, it was pretty pure. But I did think to ask, what's my relationship to this experience? And um, there was a very subtle leaning in, trying to make that state continue. Very subtle. And when that was seen, the trying fell away. And then there was immediately wanting it to continue because I was no longer actively engaged in making it continue. Like, oh, no, wait, no, I want it to continue. There was fear it wouldn't continue. So boom, boom, boom. The mind saw these ways of clinging to this state. And the next thing that happened was that there was all this joy that arose that the mind had seen the clinging. I think Joseph mentioned that. You know, sometimes in the midst of seeing the clinging, the mind can get really happy because it is seeing them being released. So sometimes the the clinging to wholesome states can be really subtle. And so this tool of checking our relationship to our wholesome experience. Really supportive, really helpful. So 
as we've said, I think, many, many times already, it really doesn't matter what is happening in your experience. We can bring mindfulness to pretty much anything. Self-hatred, depression, loneliness, confusion, bliss, joy, happiness, calm, peace, ease, boredom, confusion. What's important is to know what is happening, to observe what happens to it as you observe it. This process leads us through to the discovery of the impermanent nature of experience, the unreliable nature of experience, seeing how suffering is constructed, seeing how it falls apart. Moment after moment, what is happening? What is happening? This investigation, a crucial tool that leads us towards understanding wisdom that frees the mind. Let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.